There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. Today, we're delving into the murky world of the TV drama McMafia as it launches in the US this week. And we're asking its co-creator, how do you write a winning screenplay? protagonist of McMafia is a dapper, well-educated London financier with a glamorous fiancé and a colourful Russian family background. A desire to avenge the mafia killing of his uncle leads Alex Godman into the dark underworld of drug crime, competing mafias and the underbelly of global capitalism. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Educated at a private school in England. I run my own firm in the city. I'm very happy with my life the way it is. On the left is the Hall of Peace. On the right is the Hall of War. Which one would you like to see? To protect your family. This is what you have to do. McMafia stars James Norton, Juliet Rylance and David Strathairn. It's a high-budget, slick drama set in shadowy corners of the south of France, a sunny place for shady people, as Somerset Morn once put it, as well as some first-class flights and first-class murders in Istanbul, Moscow, Tel Aviv and Mumbai. The screenwriter Hussein Amini is Iranian-born, British-educated and Hollywood-seasoned. He wrote the adapted screenplay for The Wings of a Dove, which earned critical acclaim and an Oscar nomination for Best Writing. He also penned the screenplay for Drive, starring Ryan Gosling and Kerry Mulligan, nominated for The Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. And he's directed an adaptation of Patricia Highsmith, Two Faces of January. He says, I used to read a lot of scriptwriting books before, but it becomes instinct. I think almost what is not said is more important than what is said. The look on the face is the crucial thing. Hussein, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. So let's start with McMafia, which has been very well received uh, here in, in Britain and is about to, to launch in America. It's based on a non-fiction account of international uh, mafia, drug crime and the moral compromises that flow from that into other lives. Why did you choose to make that now? Um, well, actually, I first read the book when it came out. And, and this is Michelle Glennie's Misha book. Glennie's book, Mafia. And um, I, I actually pitched it as a movie and we were going to sort of try, try to take as much of it as we could and turn it into four stories that came together. And I, even then, I didn't feel... The, the, the canvas was really big enough to tell, you know, such a massive thematic story, which is what Misha's, you know, the, the notion that as the world's become globalised and borders have come down, uh, mobs and gangs have taken advantage of that. And, and it just felt that the scale and scope of it was almost too big for film, whereas 
long-form television drama, and as as that became sort of more and more popular, felt exactly the right medium for it. And and so then it was a question of trying to find, I guess, a narrative that allowed James Watkins and I, my co-creators, get into the, the world of, of of Misha's book, which is this sort of really the globe and how 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 you know the cartels are dealing with the triads who are sort of fighting with the Yakuza and competing with the Russian mafia. And, and it's sort of game with friends, with mobs, really. Uh, and that's, that's what we were after. I'm a banker, not a gangster. All I need is a banker. These wars are fought in the boardrooms, not on the street. Money, moving money is your weapon. You can sit behind your desk anywhere in the world and still bring down the man who killed your uncle. If that's what you want. And I think one thing that would fascinate our listeners and some of my colleagues is you you take a book that's written as non-fiction and it's got a lot of detail on financial crime and financial transactions. Alex Goldman, the main character, explains at one point how you can money launder via something called a special purpose vehicle. It's often about invisible transfers of money and how do you bring that to life, given that, that Misha Glenny, as a journalist, has got the luxury of being able to explain how it works? We have to get the point in a few seconds, otherwise we'll switch over, won't we? Well, one of the film- filmmakers I really love is Michael Mann, and what he, what he tends to do is he sort of drops you into a world and, and makes some allowances, but not that many. So it's almost like you're, you're overhearing people talking in the way that they would, and, and you're supposed to keep up. So I think the trick is... To you don't over-explain. I think, I think the moment you over-explain, it becomes, it becomes heightened TV drama. And I think what we were after was something more authentic. And, and so, yes, there have to be some allowances. But at the same time, you know, I don't think a banker would explain to another banker how a special purpose vehicle works. So I, th- I think some of those things have to be taken for granted. And, and hopefully, you know, there's enough going on in the subtext and in, in the drama of a scene that the, the dialogue sort of slips by. And how important is veracity here? You know, people who do know this world could look at it and say, yes, I could imagine something like that, or I heard a case like that in Mumbai a few years ago. How far do you allow that to stretch into, well, wouldn't it be better if? Well, I think, I think veracity was the most important thing for us because that's what, that, that's what struck me about Misha's book. And it was the first time I, I'd sort of read, and I, I've, I've, I read a lot about sort of the criminal underworld and something I'm fascinated by. But but it suddenly opened my eyes to the way it had transformed because sort of when you look at, I don't know, crime movies or things, you say mob stories in the 90s, it's really about the sort of death of the mafia, the American mafia particularly. And and The Sopranos or Goodfellas is really about the decline, A, of those kind of people, but also the genre as a whole. And and then it suddenly felt with Misha's book that that sort of criminal enterprises had not only kind of re-emerged but reinvented themselves mm. this sort of global phenomena and it was something so new and, and the detail that he'd gone into in terms of the research was so eye-opening that, that that sort of fact was was more interesting than fiction and and that's why it was really important for James and I to try to capture some of that authenticity and and, and the, the tone is what we took most from Misha's book I think. The other aspect of this is the, the Godman family, which I particularly in, enjoyed having spent a lot of time in, in Russia in the 90s and, and meeting those families who've got out of Russia, moneyed families, whether by fair means or foul, 
sent the kids to posh public school. I think we, we know that Alex has been to a mm-hmm. pretty good school, don't we? But who are still awkwardly living between sort of a Russia in their heads or a Russia they've been forced to leave. And Kensington, uh, Alex's his father, is, is very much in that category. To an extent, he is himself. And he talks about being teased at school at one point. Do you remember when I used to pick you up at the boarding school when your papa was busy? How much I embarrassed you? You never embarrassed me. Ah, oh, yes, I did. in front of your friends, and I kissed you on both cheeks. You answered to me in English, and you, you tried to shake my hand. <laughs> you got mm. to go back to London in your Bentley. No. I had to stay there for the rest of term. Get called a yid. I know, I mean, you did what you had to do to survive. You always have. And I understand it. It is embarrassing to be Russian these days. But don't ever be ashamed of who you are. That's Alex talking about the difficulties of grafting onto a a different society. I'm making an imaginative leap here, but I'm wondering whether there is a bit of you in in this as someone who came from a different culture and goes off to an English public, i.e. high-end private school. No, I mean, that that speech was, was lifted sort of almost from what happened to me is I, I, I came to this country in 79 after the Iranian Revolution and, you know, with a certain amount of money. So it was not, not as privileged as Alex's family, but, but, you know, I was sent to an English private school where I was teased for being sort of other. And I remember like all the other Iranian kids would talk to me in Farsi and I'd sort of answer in English because I was sort of ashamed of being Iranian. And my dad would turn up and, and he'd kiss me on both cheeks and all the English kids would shake hands with their dad. They, they, that, that was literally taken from life. And, and it's sort of when you're adapting eight hours of television, I guess, it's, it's you have to, to make it personal, you have to find things from, from I think, you know, in my case, my own experience. And, and that was my way into the story because it was, you know, it was an experience I'd had and I'd, I'd felt when it happened was very unique to me. But I think as more and more people are now living in countries and cities where they weren't born, I think that experience is becoming more and more universal. So suddenly, in this tale of a sort of Russian mobster's son, I, f- I found a way to express some of the experiences that I'd gone through. I mean, the awkwardness of families in exile adjusting to living in new cities and the dad who who refuses to let go of the past and his old country and the mother who, who adjusts was, again, my experience with my mother adjusted very easily and my father, I think, probably struggled a little more. That ability to put both Russianness and being English on the screen together. Now, that that's an area where critics, it would be fair to say, have differed. Some people yep. thought that James Norton wasn't quite the full package there or his Russian wasn't good enough or one way or the other, that he was just either too impassive or he you know, was perhaps more English than, than Russian. What was your response to that? Well, my response to that would be in terms of his performance, I, I think it's a brilliantly understated performance. And, and I think a lot of it is to do with, with we wrote and told him that this is someone who's hiding behind a mask. You know, the way he's dealt with bullying at school is is to kind of be icy about the whole thing and not to show emotion and expression. And his unknowability is also his strength. And I, th- I think that's why he survives in the way he does, is, is no one sees him coming. Um, the, another book I'd read... Which Doesn't was, that make it occasionally quite hard to watch? Because being impassive, 
may be a, a great thing to have on your side if you are a finance whiz who's getting in, involved with crime, but it is maybe harder for audiences to stick with. Well, I, th- I think if audiences stick with it, I, th- I think there is the sense that there's there's a lot going on underneath. And I think I think that, that for me is something I've always loved in film. I mean, the, the, the Ryan Gosling character in Drive was the same, where they're, they're people who, who don't express or emote a lot. And, and I've always found that incredibly powerful and moving at the right times. And like another of my favourite films is The Samurai, the Alain Delon film, which is, again, about people who don't say very much and there's a stillness. And, and I personally find that very, very, A, intriguing and ultimately very moving. Uh, there are a good number of Russian actors in the drama, which I think you know, was to its advantage. It's they, a globalised cast. It's a totally globalised cast. Did and, they all and, get on? Yeah, they all did. They got on really well, actually. And there was there was, but also they really helped us as um, as as writers and creators, I guess, in the sense that they really wouldn't let us get away with cliches that we may have come to the story with initially. So, for example, they'd pick me up on, you know, like Russian family wouldn't behave like this, or the mother. She quite happily slapped the husband if he went out of order in that physicality and that. that oh, she, the, the mother does get a, a great line, doesn't she? Which is, you know, the world is all the same now. Gucci here, Gucci there. When I met your father, I was a market girl, and he made me a princess. I had everything I wanted. I had you. I had your sister. I had Chanel and Dior. It didn't matter what he did for a living. You know, in Russia, they call everyone a gangster. So what? Papa was a businessman, and in his business there was a lot of money, so it was very dangerous. And then when they kicked him out, I didn't care that he wasn't a boss anymore. I still loved him. She's a terrific actress, and, and, and the tradition they come from as well is, is they get very involved, not only in the script, but also in the blocking of a scene or um so quite often they tell the director james you know what about we how about trying it this way or that way and and all the actors would pick him up if if we were ever because because obviously the russian actors don't want to be portrayed as kind of two-dimensional thugs the whole time and 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 one of our intentions with this was to tell you know their story you know even the villains are the heroes of their own story so they have to have you know, they have families, they have people they love. Sometimes even the terrible things they do are because of the people they love. I suppose that the downside of having sort of multicultural crime is that you can be accused of multicultural stereotyping. And there was mm. some criticism, partly from uh, the Russian embassy in, in London. You can sort of imagine why, because there was a suggestion that, that the Russian embassy was complicit. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, perhaps more seriously, over the portrayal of Jewish characters, in particular Semyon Kleiman, the uh, Israeli businessman and politician of ill repute, uh, played, I think, very brilliantly by uh, David Strathairn, who's a, a great American actor in this kind of shadowy, ambiguous role. Do you think there's some some right on the side of the complainants there, the portrayal of Israel in the film? Well, I, I think the big complaints came, came really in the first sort of 20 minutes of the first episode, I think, of a couple of tweets went out. And, and I, I think the Lawyers for Israel group then sort of withdrew that complaint. But at least they said that they would give the series its eight episodes. Um, for, for me, Israel is a very, very powerful democracy in the sense that it has the ability to, you know, look at itself and its good and its bad side and, 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 and corruption. And like any democracy, like Britain, like the United States. And, and we, we sort of felt that we were showing 
corruption in people, not countries, and certainly not religions. It's something I, I grew up in in Iran, which was very tolerant of all religions and actually was very, at the time, very friendly with Israel. So there was no, there was no, certainly no gender on my part. And and the same with the Russian thing is, is we try to be as respectful as possible to the people of those countries whilst arguing that the systems, in the same way that the United States and the United, you know, the British systems have corruption and there are people within them who are corrupt. So I think that was the, that was the idea. And, and everyone really, we're talking about people in a world which is corrupt. So I'd argue very strongly that we weren't singling out certain countries or anything for criticism particularly. Semyon Kleiman's character really changes over the course of eight episodes and I think you see, you start off thinking one thing about him and end up thinking something very different. Let's talk a bit more about your wider career and I, I think a lot of people are seeing the, it, it looks like the, the dream job which I'm, I'm sure is, you know, brings it, it, its burdens and its toil like, like any other uh, script writing at a high level. Where did you start? I wrote a piece actually for the BBC, a four-part series, which never got made, but it was really, again, about um, the experience I'd had in exile as Iranian. And as it never got made, I got a chance to do this, you know, 25 odd years later. Um, but that's how I started. And then I was very fortunate um, that two of the early scripts I wrote, Jude, uh, adaptations of Jude the Obscure and Wings of the Dove, got made. Um, so I, I got quite an early start. And it would have been very easy to be discouraged, like a lot of my friends who who just didn't have the breaks that I did. And, and I think that there's such a combination of luck and persistence in this profession. And, and, and I had so many rejection letters before, you know, things finally, um, you know, before I finally got lucky. We quoted you back to yourself at, at the top of the show saying it becomes instinct. What's not said is more important than what is said. It's very hard to talk about writing, but what have you changed or pared down about the way that you write that now makes you a better scriptwriter than you would have been 20, 25 years ago? Well, I don't know that you, you, you ever become a better screenwriter. I think the craft may become more polished. I think sometimes you have less to say than other times. But I, I do think that, for example, the amount of time I've spent in editing rooms has, has taught me that, 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 that quote you just mentioned is, is really just seeing how powerful uh, close-ups are, for example, at the right moment, and, and also how much dialogue gets lost in a cutting room and you see editors sort of prune what's there and, and make it more powerful with silences than, than, than you know, tons of dialogue. And, and I also find sometimes that audiences stop listening. If, if dialogue goes on too long, it sort of becomes noise. Um, and there's something about, you know, film is the only medium where you can go right up to someone's face and feel, you know, the sadness in their eyes or, or, or a little spark of a lie or something like that and I, th I think that's just a very very powerful sort of weapon to have in your arsenal as a screenwriter and, and you've worked you worked from britain but with hollywood for for many years and it's obviously a place that's still in a sense reeling from the harvey weinstein allegations you had an exclusive deal i think with miramax yep. therefore with harvey weinstein for 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 some time so i mean the question's obvious i mean what did you think then what do you think now and what's changed in between well, I think I think you know it's very hard because it's 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 obviously after everything I've read, it's 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 impossible in any way to be anything other than appalled by what's happened, you know. But you know, there's a, there's a part of me that also benefited from working at that company at the time that I did when it was really at the top of the film industry and and both financially and creatively, you know, I, I gained a lot out of it. Um, so so to be honest, I feel I feel quite conflicted in that sense. 
not about anything that would happen to Harvey. It's really more about sort of my own, you know, am I being a hypocrite by, you know, in a way getting up and going, you know, I hated it and all these terrible things happened. I, di I didn't know about some of them. Others I probably suspected. Um, when you say you probably suspected. Well, I, I didn't know. I, I certainly didn't know about, you know, what was going on with the actresses, but I, I was aware that there was a culture of bullying, um, you know, but but then there was in every other company as well. I don't think it was, it was particularly. I mean, it was more unique to Miramax perhaps than other places. But but I think there's a, a power structure within, the film industry and probably most industries where the people in charge often can treat the people below them in a fairly abusive way. Um, then again, and you really weren't aware that there was a problem with women being around Harvey Weinstein. Um, look, I heard the rumours. But, 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 I mean, in a way, I, I suppose I should have been... It, it never happened. I, you know, I, I like to think that it, that there was a reason that I, I didn't witness it because I, I think I would have disapproved very strongly, and I, and I sense people knew that. But, but I, I don't... Um, you know, it was really rumours we all heard, and, and I don't think anyone really knew the extent of it. I used to think of it almost in the way that, that Harvey was persistent in a lot of ways, and I didn't... I, you didn't think it would be violent, you know, in that sense, it would be a lot of persuading people to go and have dinner or whatever or this and that. But but what where it went beyond that, I think I can honestly say it, it came as a shock when we all found out the stuff in the New York Times and the New Yorker. And the, the hashtag Me Too, I mean, you'll know a lot of prominent people in, involved in that. I mean, it sounds like you, you, in a sense you want to nuance the take of what you knew then and what it's fair to say now. Does Me Too sort of run that risk of kind of visiting what we know now on people and saying, well, well, you know, a lot of people are responding to it saying you didn't speak out at the time? Well, Is that fair? I mean, you know, you worked around a lot of these people. They were quite powerful people in their own right. And I think that is the, the difficulty with well, this. One of the things is that I, that I don't know, but I, I, I certainly remember stories being around back in 2001, 2002. Now, they never came out, perhaps, because at that time, you know, Miramax was in a far more powerful position. You know, the the newspapers probably didn't feel emboldened to come out with those stories. I, 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 you know, those stories w aren't something that came out in the last couple of years. That's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say about the Me Too, I, I, I do think it's the, 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 almost the strength of all these movements, I think, is really important. And even if people turn around and say it's gone too far or wherever, I, th I think it has to go very far in order for real change to happen. And I remember... It was the same with, you know, the, the, the racism that was going on in this country. When I came here, was it, was it took people to say I was very affectionately called things like a wog and a darkie. And it wasn't said to me maliciously, but it was, it was part of the culture and the language. And it took the very PC thing of saying these words are unacceptable and this behavior is unacceptable for that to completely change. And I think we'll look back in, you know, 10 years time and the idea that women don't get paid the same as men will be. As, as crazy and unbelievable as the fact that people had to stick on the back of buses because they came, you know, from a different ethnicity. But they um, will need big, bigger parts to be written for them for that to happen. Well, well, they do, absolutely. And I think, I think, but I do think that's already changing. It's, it's like, for example, when I'm thinking about an next script or whatever, that, that's something which is far more in my consciousness because of what's happened than probably it was previously. 
So what happens to McMafia now, the, the afterlife? Obviously, you're just uh, launching, this series is launching in, in the US, so we're not going to, to do any spoilers. I think we've been very good, haven't we, in not... In not very good, yeah. Not so far. Nothing, we're, not, yeah. we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't, uh, won't give away the final scene just as we play the Economist sting music out. There has been talk of a second series. Obviously, it's, I suppose it depends a bit on, on the overall performance uh, commercially of the first. It's a BBC and AMC, AMC and yeah. Amazon. There's a lot of parties involved. A lot, a of, lot, par- of, a lot of parties yeah. who have to all, all uh, say yes. I mean, would you want a, a second season necessarily? I mean, should things always run on into the, the next part of the saga? Well, well, it was written really to be one series initially. And I think the world is interesting enough to go well beyond one series. But, but it's, um, I think it's a combination of, I think as a writer, you also have to feel really, really passionate about something to do in another eight episodes. And I think some of that comes from inside and some of it comes from the audience. And if if, the, if you really feel there's an appetite out there for more, I think that feeds the creativity and, and makes it much more exciting to write. So it's probably a little bit early, but I've certainly got some ideas about how I'd like to approach it. And I think that would be quite sort of different from what people might expect but it's um yeah no no absolutely it's exciting Hussain Amelie thank you very much for joining us thank you very much and we do want to know what you think too have you seen McMafia or are you still excited to to watch it and you can feed back to us when you've seen it in the US too about what you think of uh, international crime and uh, the responsibility of high finance we're on email radio at economist.com and also on twitter at economist radio one more ask please don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider I'm Anne McElvoy in London this is The Economist 